2: Investing in art. With record sums achieved at auction, how does fine art compare to more traditional asset classes? There's been a fee shake-up at Fidelity, active funds will have performance-related fees in the future, but is this good news for investors? And why you shouldn't bank on BOMAD – that's the bank of mum and dad – who may not have the cash reserves you expect them to? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's money news. The Freeze Art Fair has come to London this week, and with it, art collectors. Most of the works touted by gallery owners will have rather hefty price tags, which has prompted the FT's James Pickford to ask, can we really regard art as an alternative investment class? He joins me now to discuss. Welcome, James. Hello. So, great piece, but does it make sense to treat art as an investment?
0: Well, you certainly can, but you will require nerves of steel, and it's not something to be recommended for sort of amateur speculators, I should say. There's a high volatility in works of art in terms of the values they they carry. The fees you're going to pay are far higher than for other asset classes. And, of course, you just never know whether the artist whose work you've bought is going to drop out of fashion tomorrow or or in five years' time. So, you know, thousands of artists whose work you can buy – you, know, you can you can just decide to sell their work, but you may not even find a buyer for some of these things because they've been forgotten. Experts, you know, say you'll be pretty lucky to even break even on, on, uh, on, on art. And if you do it very well, if you put a lot of work in, you might make a, re- a sort of annual return of 10% or something. And obviously it's a lot easier to, to go to the stock market for, for, for returns uh, in, in those sorts of things. Although areas. you
2: can't pin a share certificate on your wall and gaze at it in wonder every day. But let's go back to the costs and fees. We're going to come on to that in our next item too about buying active funds. But if you're buying an artwork, what kind of costs and fees are typically involved?
0: It's the real killer when you're looking at returns from art because let's say you're buying at auction, you will typically pay 25 to 30% in the form of a buyer's commission. So imagine if you were buying a passive fund and then you could expect as little as 0.2% when you buy that. Imagine Mm. an auctioneer turns around and said, actually, I'd like a a quarter more on top of that, please. And then if you decide to sell this work later on, your taste change or your circumstances change, and you go back to the auction house, you'll pay a seller's fee of 5 to 10%. So between times, you, you, the thing has to go up by 30 to 40% in value just for you to break even. And that is not taking into account some of the ongoing costs that you might expect to pay if you've got a particularly valuable work of art, insurance, transport, mm. storage, valuation costs. So the other thing, actually, I haven't mentioned, is you could obviously buy at a gallery. Then you don't quite know whether you're, you know, what markup the gallery owner is, is charging on the art. And that will typically, they usually take 50% and the artist takes 50%. So, but you're never quite sure whether you're getting good value there.
2: Yes, and then we haven't even gone into the issue of, of provenance, which is debated every week on one of my favourite programmes, Fake or Fortune. Um, <laughs> I, I just love that when people buy something yes. and you know get it out of a skiff and find out it's an old master. It sadly doesn't doesn't happen very often, but for people who are buying auctional from galleries, what kind of length of time will they need to hold on to an artwork in order for its value to typically rise?
0: It very much depends what it is, but because obviously it's vastly different according to whether it's an old master, i.e. a painting which has been painted before eighteen twenty, or a contemporary work by a living artist where, where values can be can fluctuate wildly and it depends even with a, a big a known name, a Picasso or whatever, it tends to have to be the right theme, it has to be of the right thing to, to to command the highest prices. But, you know, people talk about experts talk about at least ten years for, for fine art. And the market particularly doesn't like it if you tend to buy and sell something over a very short period and that's particularly for the work of living artists Mm -hmm. takes a very dim view of flipping and and you will find that if you if you buy a work uh contemporary work from a from a gallerist they may well decide not to sell you anything anything else anything any any of the good stuff if you do go ahead and flip the work because it's sort of
2: it's just not done darling it's not done
0: because it fixes (laughs) it it it, it risks fixing a low price low benchmark public price for their their artists who they're who they're trying to look after and treat as as, as someone who who wants to be a long-term investment
2: why you've been researching this piece any big no-nos that you've come across things that you really shouldn't buy because they won't sell later on
0: I think you will find that what I mean what the market uh, finds that contemporary art is where it where its uh, the biggest rises have been seen as opposed to old masters which in you know, before the 1980s, all of the record auction prices were held by old masters. But I don't know if you remember, in you're probably too young to remember, but in 1987, Van Gogh Sunflowers sold for, for around 24 million pounds. And that was the first time that a, a modern, if you like, we'd call it modern uh, advisedly, but a modern work of art I do remember that, had the actually. auction record. and it's- And ever since then, auction records have been broken by modern artists and and contemporary artists. So people say, you know, you you make more money in contemporary art, but of course it's more volatile. And so you could see old masters as a a sort of safe plodding investment Mm. that has been doing over over the recent years, exactly what it's done for for previous decades, which is gradually
2: um, rise in price,
0: but very gradually.
2: Good. Well, thanks very much there to James Pickford, Deputy Money Editor. You can read FT Money's lead feature all about the risks of investing in art in the FT Money section of the FT Weekend newspaper or online from Friday at ft.com slash money. Still to come, why you shouldn't bank on BoMad. The active versus passive debate took a new twist this week after Fidelity, the global asset manager, announced a major rethink to the fees it charges on its active funds. From next year, it's going to phase in new Fulcrum fees, a confusing sounding name, but one that it says will align investment performance with the management fees ordinary investors like you and me are charged. Meryn Somerset-Webb has written all about the news this week in her column for FT Money and joins me now on the line. Welcome, Meryn. Hi, Claire. So, you want to welcome this move, but like many journalists, you were frustrated by the lack of detail in Fidelity's big announcement this week. Yeah,
3: absolutely. I mean, I, I really, really want to welcome it. You know, one of the things that they said when they announced it was that cost is the big thing that the industry can't duck anymore. It's got to confront it. And so this, it, when they first started talking yesterday, you and I were both on the, the press call, when they first started talking it sounded like we were going to hear something really good. We're going to cut the base fee on the on our funds to an absolute minimum, and then we're going to charge you the call a full fee, but I think we'll call a performance fee because it is related to performance, charge a performance fee on top of that. And then if the fund underperforms its index, you get some money back. If it doesn't underperform, you don't. So so the take that the fund management house gets is clearly related to whether it outperforms or not. Now, Mm -hmm. that's good. That's a good idea. That's exactly what we want to see. We want to see the retail investor only being charged for outperformance when it actually sees outperformance. The problem as ever, is that the devil is in the detail. When Fidelity announces, they didn't tell us what the quantum of the base fee was going to be. They didn't tell us what the quantum of what they call the fulcrum fee and we call the conformance fee was going to be. So we ended up absolutely none the wiser. We ended up knowing that they, they had an idea that lots of people have had before, but we don't know anything more about how it will be executed, except for a vague suggestion that if the funds actually do regularly outperform, uh, investors might end up paying even more than they do at the moment. So Nice idea, interesting idea, Um, not a new idea, but, but still an interesting one. But we still can't tell whether it represents genuine progress for the retail investor or not.
2: No, and they've said that the earliest that they're going to start introducing this new share class on their existing funds will be January 2018, which doesn't give them all that long to... Um, no, I mean, it, it,
3: it was slightly bizarre to announce the change without giving us <laughs> any detail. It, so it, it definitely doesn't pass what you might call the clarity test, which is very frustrating. And, of course, this means that they will introduce a new class of funds. So this this new charging system won't apply on current funds because, as Fidelity said, and, and I found this rather bizarre bizarre their big clients aren't interested in sudden change so they don't like sudden change even if it benefits them apparently which leads you to suggest, think that maybe it won't benefit them anyway so the old funds won't get this new charging system there will have to be new funds there will have to be a process where people might migrate from old funds to new funds etc so it's not going to be quick it's not going to be straightforward and it may well turn out to be incredibly complicated and complication as you know is the enemy of the retail investor.
2: Indeed. We'll keep following the story for updates but in the meantime you've described this as the active funds industry fighting back against the passive revolution. Mm, mm. So what are the main criticisms of actively managed funds?
3: <laughs> One then often not very active, two whether they're properly active or not they tend to be extremely expensive and three that they don't usually outperform their indices. So, you know, the vast majority of actively run funds underperform the index anyway. Therefore, you're paying an awful lot to get absolutely nothing back. And my own criticism of them, which goes beyond money, is that they tend to be very bad as a whole at performing the social function that shareholder Mm. capital requires from them, i.e. that they keep an eye on corporate leadership, that they stop them behaving in a socially irresponsible way, an environmentally irresponsible way, uh, an illegal way, stop them running any legislative risk, etc. So the fund management industry is supposed to be the capitalism's policeman, effectively. uh, And it's a job that it does very badly.
2: And although we don't have the details of exactly what Fidelity is going to do, should we at least be encouraged that they and other active fund managers are finally recognising that something's got to give on fees?
3: Absolutely. I mean, that's what I was trying to say in the column. I don't want to write this off. It represents progress because it represents this conversation about how we can find the correct balance between fund managers making profits, which of course they must, and the retail investor being treated fairly. You know, this is a balance that has been wrong for many decades now. It's been skewed horribly in favour of the fund management houses, any movement in the conversation about how we can redress that balance is really important. So while I'm not yet, and I don't think anybody is prepared to come out and say, well, Fidelity has done something that we all massively approve of here, the very fact that it has, as one of the largest fund management companies in the world and one of the few private ones, that it is now moving the conversation forward has to be considered
2: progress of sorts. Well, thanks very much there to merrin Somerset-Webb. You can read her column, Active Fund Management start to fight back now on our website at ft.com slash money or in saturday's ft money section in the weekend ft ft money is hosting an ask me anything event on the evening of wednesday october the 25th with our u.s investment columnist ken fisher fisher investments want to come go to ft.com slash event to book tickets which cost 35 pounds including a glass of wine or two if you're quick and view full terms and conditions are you relying on a future bailout from the bank of mum and dad? Or perhaps you're a parent preparing to bestow a generous withdrawal on one of your adult children? In either scenario, Jason Butler, FT Money's man columnist, thinks you should think very carefully. And he joins me now in the studio to discuss. Welcome, Jason. Hello, Claire. So let's start with BOMAD, the bank of mum and dad, or wealthy parents who feel they should probably help out their children with, say, a housing deposit or other gifts what should they be wary of?
1: Well, there's a a myriad of issues that they need to think of, but the single biggest one is that their own needs need to come first because we're all living a lot longer, but not just living a lot longer, we're going to be younger for a lot longer. And that has implications for the cost of our lifestyle being more than we think perhaps, you know, uh, than the old traditional thing of you retire, you have a few years of active uh, retirement and then um, then you sort of fade into the distance and then eventually die on time and then your uh, next generation receive the the assets so we 've got an issue there of an increasing expectation of a lifestyle which is going to have a cost implications but then we 've also got other issues we 've got marriage breakdowns if you give your children money and the the new uh, the ex the ex husband or a wife of your 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 daughter or son takes half of it in a divorce settlement. That's, that's a very painful situation. And we've also got people having a lot different approaches to life, people starting businesses, people living abroad. So there's a, a lot more complication about the lifestyles of the people receiving the money. So I'm a big fan of people thinking about lending the next generation money. And that has some benefits in the sense that you're not giving up uh, the right to the money so if there was a divorce at the next generation down or a or a bankruptcy your money's not hopefully going to disappear down the down a black hole but equally it means you can put off the decision about actually gifting the money and writing it off to a stage when perhaps you've got more clarity about what your own needs are and the beauty of that of course is that the the generation below that's borrowing the money uh, will still pay a fair level of interest but less than they would pay say mortgage companies or credit card companies or loan loan providers and they would pay it back so that the person, the parent or the relative lending the money is getting some return and, and is in a way sort of helping the younger generation whilst also protecting their own situation. So lending money to generations is, is a good idea, but not in isolation
2: Okay, so for generations who've got baby boomer parents, the expectation that a large inheritance could solve their financial problems in the future sounds pretty foolish. This would be a completely new way of rethinking that relationship. Well, it's one
1: aspect, but the the issue for younger people is that they've got to stop uh, thinking they're going to get an inheritance bailout, whether it's a loan, a gift or just money that's left in the pot. They've got to start thinking in the sense that they're going to probably have two or three careers, that they're going to have to reinvent themselves several times, that they can and must, in fact, work for longer. In fact, it's been proven that work is actually one of the single biggest determinants to mental and physical good health and longevity in general and life fulfilment. So it's not a bad thing that you're going to have to work for longer. But when you're thinking about your overall financial plan, it means that you've got to think much more holistically about a much longer time horizon for both living but also the fact that you're going to have to save more and therefore the decisions that you have on a daily basis have to be taken in the context of how they reflect on your future self so in other words Living a life of Riley now has a price to pay when you're later on in later life, particularly if you don't get that inheritance bailout because mum and dad have been skiing, spending the kids' inheritance.
2: Yes, I love that term. And the skin club I've also heard of, spending the kids' inheritance now. But one story we've covered in Money this year is that the number of wills being disputed in the courts, for example, are on the rise, which is never a good situation for anyone. So how can families talk about money an inheritance while everyone is still alive.
1: Well, this gets to the nub of my article and which obviously is a thorny issue as I say that talking about money in families is actually harder than talking about sex and relationships. Yeah. Uh, people just find it difficult, awkward and taboo. And there are lots of reasons for that because money is such a uh, such a, an emotive and it's a very abstract thing for many people and they've all got their own different perspectives. The older generation sometimes thinks that if if they have some control over the next generation to treat them nicely that, that they do that by perhaps controlling the purse strings. Mm. Equally the younger generations might find it a bit difficult to sort of upset mum and dad or auntie or uncle and talk about money and their own issues because it might show that they've perhaps not been as successful or as good with money as they should be so the big issue that families should do is first and foremost get this out in the open they need to sort of show some sunlight on the family's finances and I talk about the issue of having a family meeting a family mission statement uh, actually getting your cards on the table who's got what where and when and what people's issues are because you can actually find out that someone's need over here could be met by someone else's need over here so if someone's got loads of cash not earning a great return perhaps that could be uncle or auntie lending that to to their nephew or niece but on sensible terms with a charge on the property a proper commercial arrangement but equally it may be that just different members of the family have a different way of focusing on money and and if someone's got as i say i think it was it called dyspaxia or is the um, dyscalculus that's it yeah sorry thank you but if they've got a real number phobia it may be affecting their ability to make smart decisions not because they're spendthrift but because they find it difficult to understand. So I think the issue for families is to actually talk about money and everyone's needs and everyone's expectations and everyone's uh, relationship with it In a structured way. And this is where the most progressive accredited or chartered financial planning firms come in. It's not about selling you investments or managing your money for a percentage. It's about paying someone a fee to help sort of coordinate and be the catalyst for this and help start that conversation and document what people are saying and thinking in a more formal way. And and believe it or not, the more communication you have and the more understanding you have in a family, in a formal setting, perhaps facilitated, as I say, by a professional, means that you're more likely to develop trust and understanding standing between the generations and there's more likelihood to be better more comprehensive more congruent decisions made about the family's money and the use of it
2: very very interesting well thanks very much there to jason butler you can read his column now why you shouldn't bank on bomad on ft.com slash money and in this weekend's ft weekend newspaper do get in touch with us and tell us what you and your family think, and whether you would be happier to talk about money or sex. Maybe we'll do sex on the podcast next week, Jason. Absolutely. What do you say? Yeah, <laughs> That's it from the FT Money Show this week. To get in touch with our team of financial experts, email money at ft.com, tweet us at ftmoney or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next week. at the Hi,
0: I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
3: usual time. Goodbye.